One of Lisa and I's favorite restaurants in Austin, Texas is called the County Line. It's a barbecue restaurant, and as you can imagine, Texas barbecue is fantastic. The Wall Street Journal recently had an article about that restaurant, and so that caught our attention, and they used it to talk about price increases. And so back in the day, the sort of the meat platter at County Line uh, Barbecue was uh, something like $6.99. Last year, it was $18.99, and this year, it is $32.99. You've probably experienced something similar if you've been out to eat in Grand Rapids. You may have noticed smaller portion sizes, higher prices. Maybe you felt the same experience at the grocery store uh, where our family shops. We were there buying store brand sandwich bread and I noticed uh, it had gone up in price, I think 12% from the week before. And as we get to the, you know, the counter to check out, we realize wow, this, the total is higher, <laughs> it keeps being higher. And so now our budget hasn't gone any higher, so we have to just sort of buy less food or different kinds of things. Maybe you're experiencing that as well. And the higher prices at restaurants and at grocery stores are a reminder, food's not free. Uh, and that uh, there is a cost associated uh, with feeding yourself with, with food. This morning, we actually are going to look at a meal that may be the most expensive meal of all time. We're going to do that, though, not to sort of gawk at prices, but to recognize that food may actually be costing us more than we think it is. That the price tag is just only one portion of how that food may be affecting us or costing us more than we want to pay. So let me invite you to take a Bible and turn to the book of Genesis chapter 25. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in the rack in front of you, and Genesis 25 is on page 19. We believe so much in the word of God, we want to make sure that every person has the opportunity to have one in their hands. And we believe that even though this was written by humans Thousands of years ago, it actually was penned by the Holy Spirit of God in such a way that when we read it and listen to it, God himself is speaking to us today. And so we want to pay close attention to what is being said, not as some sort of history lesson, but as an opportunity for God to speak to our hearts today. So in Genesis 25, we're going to be focusing on the portion of Scripture that begins in verse 19. So if you pay attention as I read, this is the account of the family line of Abraham's son, Isaac. Abraham became the father of Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebekah, daughter of Bethuel the Aramean from Padan Aram, the sister of Laban the Aramean. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was childless. The Lord answered his prayer, and his wife Rebekah became pregnant. The babies jostled each other within her, and she said, Why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. The Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. 
The first to come out was red, and his whole body was like a hairy garment. So they named him Esau. After this, his brother came out with his hand grasping Esau's heel. So he was named Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when Rebekah gave birth to them. The boys grew up and Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country, while Jacob was content to stay at home among the tents. Isaac, who, loved, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once, when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came in from the open country famished. He said to Jacob, quick, let me have some of that red stew. I'm famished. That is why he was also called Edom. Jacob replied, first sell me your birthright. Look, I'm about to die, Esau said. What good is the birthright to me? But Jacob said, swear to me first. So he swore an oath to him, selling his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew. He ate and drank and then got up and left. So Esau despised his birthright. In this story, there are two people for whom food ends up costing them far more than they actually wanted to pay. The first is Isaac, so let's look at him. Verse 28, Isaac, who had a taste for wild game. Isaac loves his food. It's hinted at in Genesis 25. It becomes explicit in Genesis 27. So just look over to the other side of the page. Verse four, Isaac says to Esau, prepare me the kind of tasty food I like and bring it to me to eat. Verse seven, Prepare me some tasty food to eat. Verse nine, prepare some tasty food for your father just the way he likes it. Verse 17, then she handed to her son Jacob the tasty food and the bread she had made for Isaac. Verse 23, no, not verse 23, verse 27. This is Isaac blessing Esau. So he went to him and kissed him. When Isaac caught the smell of his clothes, he blessed him and said, ah, the smell of my son is like the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. May the God give you heaven's dew and earth's riches, an abundance of grain and new wine. Isaac loves his food. Now back to chapter 25, the problem is, it's just a parenthetical comment, but God has put it in here for a reason. In verse 28, we find out that because Isaac loves food so much, he ends up introducing favoritism into his family. He chooses to love Esau more than Jacob because Esau gets him the food that he likes. Now, on one hand, this is a completely irrational decision to favor Esau over Jacob for a variety of reasons. First, 
Isaac has prayed for these boys for a long time. When you first read the story, you may be like me and you think, okay, well, Rebecca, his wife, didn't have any children. Isaac prayed, dear Lord, give her some kids, and voila, she got pregnant. But if you read carefully, he's 40 years old when they get married. How old is he when they actually have kids? 60. How long did he pray for these boys? 20 years. Why would you favor one over the other? They're both miracles from God. He's prayed earnestly for these children. They don't have any other children, just these two. And God has been more than generous to answer their prayers. You would think he would love them both equally. They're clearly blessings from God. It's also weird that he would favor Esau, who's older, over Jacob, who's younger, because Isaac is himself a younger brother. Ishmael is older than Isaac, and Isaac has experienced some of the difficulties of being a younger sibling. You would think he would not perpetuate that by favoring the older against the younger. Even still more, there's a prophecy that the older will serve the younger. And while that prophecy is given to Rebecca, we're pretty sure she communicated that to Isaac because God needs Isaac to know Jacob is the one that gets the blessing. Well, if you know that God is choosing to bless the younger, why would you purposely favor the older? And then finally, this is Isaac. Remember, we saw him last week. And he was blessed by not making a decision about a spouse on what he liked to eat or what she was able to cook, but simply leaving the choice up to the Lord. Now here we are all these years later, and Isaac is letting his stomach make a decision for him. It's not rational, because food has a stronghold in his life. It's caused him to introduce favoritism into the family. And the consequences of him playing favorites is going to resonate for generations. The first place we see it resonate is in his son Esau, who also appears to have a problem with food. We're told this story that One time Esau is out hunting and he doesn't catch anything and he comes home and he says he is famished. And he sells his birthright for a bowl of lentil stew. Now what's a birthright? We're not completely certain, but our best guess is this. The oldest child got a double portion of the inheritance, meaning, so in Isaac's case, he got two kids. What he would do when it was time to pass on the inheritance is you'd take all of the inheritance that's going to the kids and you would divide it into three portions. Esau would get two of those portions and Jacob would get one. It's the rights of the firstborn. What this means is Esau is selling one-third of the total inheritance or half of his inheritance. He gets two-thirds, and he is willing to sell one of those thirds to Jacob for a bowl of stew. 
Now Isaac is one of the wealthiest and most blessed men in the world because of God's blessing. That means that makes this meal perhaps the most expensive meal of all time. Likewise, it's not a rational decision. You're like, well, if he's about to die, isn't his life worth? He's not actually starving to death. He may be famished, but if he was literally starving to death, he would be passed out, or he would have hallucinations, or he would be too weak to walk. He would not be having this conversation. I'm sure he's hungry, but most likely he has several days and maybe even a couple of weeks that he could go without food, without actually dying. And do we really think that Isaac and Rebecca and Jacob and God would let him starve to death in the tents? He's a, surely there's a family meal coming in a couple of hours. Nobody is gonna be like, hey, tough man, sorry, just die. There's no rational basis for this decision. Why is he making it? Well, he inherited from his father an unhealthy attitude about food. Hebrews 12 talks about it this way. See that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. Afterward, as you know, when he wanted to inherit this blessing, he was rejected. Even though he sought the blessing with tears, he could not change what he had done. It's not accidental that the author of Hebrews compares what Esau did with sexual immorality. When you have sex outside of marriage, you are selling something. You are giving away something that is incredibly valuable. Something that doesn't really actually rationally make sense to do. So it is with this meal. For one meal, Esau gave away half of his inheritance. Why? Because food has a stronghold in his life. So too for us today. It is possible for food to have an unnatural power in our lives. It is possible for us to be addicted to food. Just like people can be addicted to sex, they can be addicted to alcohol, they can be addicted to gambling. But the trick with food is we all have to eat. Yet the purpose of these stories is to remind us there is a cost or can be a cost associated with food that goes far beyond anything we rationally would ever want to pay. Isaac introduces destructive things into his family because of his unhealthy love of food. Esau sells his inheritance in a completely nonsensical decision because food is a stronghold in his life. Paul talks about this in Philippians 3. He says, there are those whose gods are their stomachs. 
And although we don't like to admit it, food can have an incredible power over us. So this morning, I'd like to give us five encouragements about what God has to say given the possible danger that food can play in our lives. Number one, we are talking about food and not about weight. I cannot make this point strongly enough. There is nothing in our passage that has anything to do with weight. Best we can tell, Esau is fit and trim and in good shape. His lifestyle is such that we would not have any indication that he is somehow overweight. In fact, throughout the Bible, the Bible says very little about weight and a lot about food because the issue is not weight. The issue is the power that food can have. And if we're honest, food can have power in all of our lives or any of our lives, which has zero to do with calories, diets, weights, any of that stuff. That is something that comes from deception that is not what God is talking about. The fittest person can be addicted to food. And the least fit person you know may not have any problems with food whatsoever. And so this story is an opportunity. I actually thought we were going to be talking about something else, and the Lord was insistent we were going to talk about food this morning. This story is about the fact that you and I, if we don't pay attention to it, may allow food to cost any one of us more than we want to pay. So please, we are talking not about weight, We're not talking about calories. We're not talking about diets. None of that. We're talking about the possibility that food can have an unhealthy power in our lives. Second, and this is the big one. If you don't remember anything else, this is the point you want to take away. God loves to set people free from cravings of food. He loves to do it. He loves to set alcoholics free from the power of alcohol. He likes to set sex addicts free from the power of sex. He loves to set people who are addicted to gambling free from gambling. He loves to set people free from the power of food. Remember what Hebrews 12 said about Esau. He was godless. And the point is, is that with God's power in his life, he would have made a far better decision. God would have sustained him to the next meal just a few hours later. And instead of selling his inheritance, right, God would have simply carried him in his hunger to a place of making a good decision. This is what God does. He loves, loves, loves to set people free. And one of Satan's great deceptions is to tell us we're not enslaved because that robs us of the opportunity to ask God to help us. And if we're just willing to say to God, look, Lord, I need some help, well, then God can come and do what he does best, which is set captives free. He absolutely loves to do this. He has the power, the will, and the longing for each and every one of us to have food be a blessing 
and not an enslaving power. Which of course raises the question, which is point number three, how do you know if it's something that is healthy, your relationship with food, or something that is unhealthy? Well, we're asking the Spirit to help us recognize the difference between cravings and enjoyment. The Bible says all of us have cravings in our flesh, and those cravings are not from the Lord. They are unhealthy. But likewise, the Bible also says that God gives us all things, including and especially food, for our enjoyment. So how do we know when we are craving something and how do we know when we are enjoying something? A few thoughts on this. First, if you can't stop eating to give thanks for it, it's probably a craving. That mindless snacking where you're like, why am I continuing to eat these pretzels? Somebody take this food away from me. Like it doesn't need to be here. Or when you feel like, man, why is that dessert so small? There should be more there. Or is there any way we could get another helping? That's probably a sign that there's cravings at work. Likewise, if you feel guilty at all associated, if guilt is at all associated with food, that's probably a sign that cravings are at work. If you feel gratitude, that's a sign this is a blessing and an enjoyment from God. If you and I find ourselves thinking about food when we're not eating, if we're looking forward to a particular kind of food or something that's coming, that might be a sign that it's a craving. Likewise, if we're unwilling to share with others, if we won't let our sister have some of our M&Ms, <laughs> if we put our name on stuff in the refrigerator and say, don't touch it, that's mine. Or if we have a secret stash in our closet that we hope nobody finds out about because we don't want them to take it from us, it might be a craving instead of an enjoyment. Food is the trickiest of things because as opposed to alcohol or sex or gambling, we all need food to survive. And we engage in eating food almost every day, if not every day. This makes it far more dangerous because food is a blessing from God. And we need help from the Spirit to discern when it has crossed over into being something that is starting to exercise power over us. Well, what if, like me, you've discovered that, yes, it has at times begun to do that? This is what the last two encouragements are for. Number four, consider developing a food plan with God. This is not, and I repeat, and I cannot say it more strongly, this is not a diet. We're not talking about counting calories or anything like that. What we're talking about is what Romans 14 says. Romans 14 says this. One person's faith allows them to eat anything, but another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. Whoever eats meat does so to the Lord, for they give thanks to God, and whoever abstains does so to the Lord, 
and gives thanks to God. Because the Bible does not contain any specific instructions about food, because food is what we would say is a disputable matter, it's something that each one of us interacts with differently, God wrote Romans 14 to tell us, look, just because you all interact with food differently doesn't mean that I don't have any opinions about it for you. The encouragement is for you and I as individuals to work this out between us and the Lord. This is not something to report to somebody else. And in fact, if someone tries to impose rules from the outside, it actually is a form of legalism that won't work. It'll just make the matter worse. This is an issue between you and the Lord because God loves to set you free from the power of food. So for me personally, the Lord indicated to me at multiple times in my past and recently that I love eating between meals and I love sweets and I love going to all-you-can-eat buffets. <laughs> it's funny, in England, they tried to call them all-you-care-to-eat, which is a very British way to say it, <laughs> all-you-care-to-eat. I was like, no, 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 I'm American. All I can eat, like, you just keep bringing that food out here. I'm gonna eat it all. And the Lord was kind, and it was kindness. And it had nothing to do with weight. It had to do with the Lord saying, look, this has got an unhealthy place in your life. And so between me and the Lord, I didn't get it from somebody else. It wasn't imposed on me by anybody else. It's just in praying and thinking through it and trying to think about this. The Lord gave me an easily rememberable thing that I'm sharing with you, not to tell you to go do this, but just to give you an example of how the Lord might interact with you. He gave me no snacks, no sweets, no seconds. I don't do it all the time, but there are sort of periods of life where the Lord's like, hey, look, food has begun to creep back in, and so it's time to sort of re-implement this food plan. Several weeks ago, the Lord said it to me again. Again, not a weight issue. Just simply, hey, look, food is beginning to cost you more than you're going to want to pay. And so he just simply said, let's do that food plan again. No snacks, no sweets, no seconds. You may have a different food plan, which would be great. Point of Romans 14 is you work it out between you and God. You may decide, you know what? No meat, just like it says in Romans 14, or just like in Daniel 1, and I'm gonna do that for 10 days or for a season. Great. You may decide, you know what? I'm giving up pop for the year. Great. You may decide, my food plan is gonna be no candy. Great. Whatever it is, it's between you and the Lord. And the point is not taking somebody else's and saying, hey, look, if I do this, make sure I get punished. Please don't do that. This is between you and the Lord, and it's an opportunity on a regular basis, perhaps a season, perhaps longer, to be able to say, look, God, I want to be in control of what food does to me and not food being in control of what it does. After all, we're in the season of Lent. This is how Lent works. There was wisdom in having Lent be a season, 40 days in which you take something and you have a food plan and you say, well, during these 40 days, I would like to do this between me and the Lord with food. If you're not doing that yet, it's not too late to start. It's still Lent. You can just go ahead and start now and think about it, pray about it, come up with something between you and the Lord and say, hey, you know what? Um, 
yeah, no snacks. I'm not, I, just, I don't want to be snacking. I'm not going to eat after 8 p.m. or whatever it may be. Great. But it's really powerful. Consider developing a food plan with God. And then fifth, consider incorporating regular fasting into your weekly schedule. Into your weekly schedule. In both the Old and New Testaments, fasting, regular ongoing fasting, is a part of what the people of God do. In the early church, the standard was fasting twice a week. For me personally, again, I'm just sharing my own sort of struggles and story with this, not to tell you you should do exactly what I do, but just to give you an illustration that one, this is a struggle for me, and two, here's one of the ways that the Lord's helped me with that. Uh, I choose to fast on Mondays. So what that means is that Sunday night, I don't eat dinner. Oh, sorry, I eat dinner on Sunday night, and I don't eat everything after that. And then I don't eat breakfast, and I don't eat lunch. And then on Monday, I get to take the extra time that I would have spent on lunch, and I get to spend that on prayer. And then I eat dinner uh, on Monday. So it's a 24-hour fast. Um, but since it's through the night, that helps, uh, as opposed to going sort of from the morning all the way through the night. You don't have to do it that way. That's just a way that uh, me and the Lord have sort of worked out. And what it does on a regular basis every week, again, this is not a weight loss dieting plan. It's an opportunity to exercise faith. To say, okay, look, normally, Mondays are not good days for me. (laughs) This is harder. It's actually the day I pray and try to set up what the sermon is supposed to be about. And often I'm feeling rather weak when I'm doing this and it's a reminder, you know what? My strength for what I do comes not from food, but from the Lord. And so it's an opportunity. You can do something different. You can be like, you know what? I think I'm gonna try to give up two meals a week. Maybe you don't eat Tuesday breakfast and Friday lunch. Whatever it may be, great. You may be on Wednesdays, I'm gonna only eat from eight in the morning till noon and no other time. Great. The point is, is that we're not only incorporating something uh, for a season during a food plan, but also something more regularly to encourage fasting and prayer. Because one of the ways that you remind yourself that that thing does not have power is by giving it up. When we give up alcohol, we're reminded it doesn't have power over us. When we give away our money, we're reminded money doesn't have power over us. I need, and you probably do too, a weekly reminder that food is a blessing, not a slave master. And every week, again, there are exceptions, go on vacation, all sorts of things. This is, please, if you make this legalistic, you will completely destroy it. But in the power of the Spirit, on a regular basis, a weekly reminder, I don't belong to food, food belongs to me, It's a gift from the Lord. I want to keep it a blessing and not let it be a curse. We're in the season of Lent. And Lent commemorates Jesus' 40 days in the wilderness where he was fasting. And do you know what the first temptation Satan tempted Jesus was? turn these stones into bread. Jesus is hungry. 
This is why when I say God loves to set people free from the power of food, he knows the power that food can have. He knows what it's like to be tempted with food. And please, we have no indication that Jesus was overweight. This is not a weight thing. Satan chooses to tempt Jesus with food because food is tempting. And what he's tempting Jesus to do is to take matters into his own hands and to bless himself. That's ultimately what the problem with food is. We make an idol out of it to say, I'm going to use that food to bless me instead of waiting and trusting God to do the blessing. I find myself eating all sorts of stuff at the all-you-can-eat buffet, and I would hear the Lord say, do you not think I'll feed you again? Jesus says, man does not live, humans do not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Esau's problem was, is he thought, if I don't bless myself, nobody's going to bless me. And that's the lie. The truth of the matter is, you and I have a God who loves us who wants desperately to bless us, who wants food to be a blessing and not a curse. And so Jesus came among us with a human body just like yours and mine. Same cravings, same desires, same hungers, same temptations. And please hear me correctly. If Satan goes after Jesus with food, Why do we think we would be exempt from this? Why do we think that we would be immune? This is why I would actually venture to say food is a possible issue for every Christian. Because Satan knows his best bet is to take something that is a blessing from God and try to transform it into something that enslaves us. And really, food, it's God's love made edible. It's probably the most tangible form of the blessings of God. And so my encouragement to you this morning and to myself, when you read Genesis 25, all of a sudden you realize food may have a much, much higher cost than the money I'm paying at the restaurant or what I'm giving in the grocery store. It may cost me some trouble in my family. It may cost me stuff for the future. It may rob me of my ability to do ministry. It may hinder my opportunity to experience God's presence in my life. And the gentle reminder from Genesis 25 is that God means for food to be a blessing and not a curse. And the encouragement to each one of us is to take just some time and evaluate. Has it become something it was not meant to be? If it has, please remember what I said was the most important point. God loves, loves, loves to set people free from the power of food. He may encourage you for a season to implement a daily food plan. 
He may encourage you to incorporate regular fasting into your schedule. These are meant to be gifts from the Lord. Let's pray together. Thank you so much for joining us for this podcast from Calvary Church. We hope this message has brought the light and hope of God's presence into your life, refreshing your soul for the journey the Lord has you on. If you have a spiritual need or would like to connect further with the work God is doing through Calvary Church, seek us out online at calvarygr.org. On our website, you can also find an archive of previous messages from this series. Thanks for listening.